it's warmer now. <laughs> anyway, well, let's pray before we get started. Father, I thank you for uh, this day of all days. We celebrate your resurrection. And so I just pray now that uh, you would be with us, as, and me in particular, as I present your words. So uh, let it bless the hearers. Let them open hearts and minds to receive. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll wait here for a moment. <clears throat> Am I doing well? Yeah. All right. Well, you know, I was thinking about it, and the word great is an adjective that probably is a little bit overused, if you really think about it. You know, on, on Sunday morning, we sing to God, and we tell him how great he is. And then we may go home, and sometime later on that week, Tony Tiger tells us that breakfast cereal is great, too. <laughs> or we open our Bibles, and we read from First Chronicles. And Scripture tells us, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. And then we might walk around and we might see posters proclaiming that a motley and sometimes bizarre collection of exotic animals and acrobats and clowns comprise a show that proclaims to be the greatest ever. Or we recall a film that was produced in 1965 that told the story of Jesus and was called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And then we recall that about five years ago on this very, well, actually five years ago tomorrow. <laughs> a team that is near and dear to my heart. The mighty Butler Bulldogs were playing for the national championship in what many have called the greatest college basketball story ever told. You, you had to figure I'd work that in somehow, right? I mean, it's just too easy to... Anyway, so those are just a few examples. We've got, we have companies that are called great. We have professional athletes that we call great. We've got lakes that are called great. We've got sporting events that are called great. Dogs and sharks that are called great. Entertainers who are called great. Cars that are called great. And we even have children who are called great by their parents, even if they've struck out three times and gotten hit in the head with a fly ball. <laughs> you did great out there today, son. Can all of this really be considered great? You know, we talk sometimes about our schools having... Um, Grade inflation. But sometimes it seems like our culture sort of has great inflation. You know? And so, if all of these things are really great, from sports performers to cereal, how great can great really be? 
And so I think as, as we sort of stand atop this massive mountain of greatness, I think the question that's at the heart of this message today, what's so great about Easter, is a fair question to ask. So maybe on this Easter Sunday of 2015, maybe we need to take a moment and recalibrate exactly what great really is. And to do that, I want to look at a verse that is almost universally acclaimed as the best known in the entire Bible. John 3.16. And it's a verse that really summarizes the Easter story in a single sentence. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, you may say, well, that's a nice verse. It's very familiar. But how are you going to recalibrate the meaning of great with that? I mean, it doesn't even use the word great anywhere in it. Well, no, it doesn't. But what it does have is greatness in every word and phrase in that entire verse. So we begin with, for God, the greatest lover. It all starts with the loving heart of the Father. This verse reveals the heart of God, the purpose of God, the unwavering truth that motivated his plan of salvation for all of humankind. God's motivation towards his people is complete and unconditional love. No one else can say that. Hopefully your parents loved you with something close to that. If you're married, hopefully your spouse loves you with a love that's close to that. But close to that is as good as human beings can do. No one on earth can love you the way that God loves you. And that is what makes him the greatest lover. And the greatest lover did what? The greatest lover so loved, and he did so to the greatest degree. In countless places, the Bible speaks of the nature of God's love. For example, um, in Exodus 34, uh, verses 6 and 7, it says this, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. You know, Jamie Smith wrote a song that I think beautifully speaks of this love. She wrote, your love is deep. Your love is high. Your love is long. Your love is wide. Your love is deeper than my view of grace. Higher than this worldly place. Longer than this road I've traveled. Wider than the gap you filled. Behold and wonder that God should love such a wretch like me 
to the greatest degree. But it's not just me, is it? It's the world, the greatest company. The greatest company possible would include everyone. And in this verse, we see that the scope of God's, all, of God's love is all-inclusive. Now, this, is, this verse is taken from a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus, who was a Jew. And the Jews would have believed firmly that God loved Israel. But there really wasn't much in Jewish theology that told them that he was going to love the entire world. I mean, Israel wasn't perfect, but it was certainly much better than those wicked Gentiles. And so it's against this backdrop of wickedness. And it's even more that than the vastness that God's love shines out most gloriously. This is the answer to everyone who says, after what I've done, God could never love me. This is the answer to those who think that Jesus died on the cross for everybody but them. The greatest lover loved the greatest company to the greatest degree. Knowing that much, how could you possibly exclude yourself? And we're only six words into this verse. That he gave which was the greatest act. In what was the greatest act, God gave his son, who also gave of himself willingly. And he gave him, gave him as an offering to pay the price for all humanity's offense and rebellion against God. This was an act of complete and undeserved love. God did not have to provide the sacrifice for us. There was nothing that was forced upon him. Think about the greatest and the most noble act that you have ever done yourself personally. How does it compare with this? Think about the greatest and the most noble act committed by any person in history. What would it be? Ending a war? Curing disease? Caring for the poor on the streets of Calcutta? Risking one's life to save others in battle? It really doesn't matter what you pick. Because there is nothing that can compare with God's greatest act. And what was that? In that act of giving, God gave the greatest gift of all, the gift of his only begotten son. There have certainly been some great gifts throughout history. France gave us the Statue of Liberty to commemorate our centennial. Richard Burton gave Elizabeth Taylor a 69.42 carat diamond that she later sold for about $5 million <laughs> to 
to fund a hospital, I might add. When the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, <laughs> Scripture says she gave him a gift of 9,000 pounds of gold, great quantities of spices, and precious jewels. Anyone want to wager a guess as to what 9,000 pounds of gold would be today? No one? Don't guess? $10 million? You're close. $159 million. <laughs> and that's just the gold part. There was the spices and the jewels as well. $159 million. But if the depth of love is measured by the value of its gift, then God's love couldn't be greater. For his love gift was his most precious possession, his only begotten son. Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God. And that this magnifies his love in giving him for us and in giving him to us. It was the greatest gift ever given. And then we have the greatest invitation that whosoever. The giving of the greatest gift included an invitation, but not merely an invitation. It included the greatest of all invitations. It was. Um, probably about a year ago or so that my family was involved in an invitation process. Jarrett and Jennifer were, were getting married. We had to figure out who to invite. And like all weddings, the number of invitations were somewhat constrained by finances. In case you haven't been involved with one recently, weddings can be pretty expensive. So I've heard Jennifer's dad had to pay most of it. <laughs> but the guest list had to be limited. Both uh, of these two have a lot of friends, and Jennifer has a very large extended family. And there's nothing that Sally and I would have liked more than to have invited the entire church to come and be a part of this. But in the end, we couldn't. We couldn't invite everyone. And so we made a conscious decision to not invite anyone. Because we really did not want anyone to feel excluded. Other than our family, we only invited a few close friends. Now I'm sure that that decision may have caused some hurt feelings. And if it did, I hope you will forgive us now that you know what the situation was. But this scenario is typical of human invitations. There's always a limitation in some way. It's either going to be constrained by finances or by space or logistics or geography or, or something. But the greatest invitation that whosoever is completely unconstrained it's limitless. It includes everyone and excludes no one. It's an invitation that extends to everyone here right now. 
the greatest invitation is for all. And then we have the greatest simplicity. Believeth. Accepting the invitation could not be simpler. Now, accepting an invitation to a wedding or a party or some other event usually requires at least a little work. I mean, you might have to call somebody back. You might have to send an email response. You might have to send back that little card that says there'll be two people coming and I'd like the fish or I'd like the chicken. It's pretty easy to accept those invitations. You know, a lot of times, or I guess most of the times with weddings at least, they've already put the stamp on there for you. All you got to do is get it to a mailbox somehow. Either walk up your driveway or drive by one. It's pretty easy. But it's not as easy as accepting the greatest invitation. Because all that requires is a response of the greatest simplicity, belief. And oftentimes I think it is this very simplicity that's the biggest stumbling block for people. Something of that importance, of that value, of that greatness. Surely it requires more of me if I'm to accept it. I need to get my life together. I need to be nicer to people. I need to stop sinning. Those are all good things to do, but none of them is required. Accepting the greatest invitation requires only an act of the greatest simplicity. Faith. Faith no bigger than a mustard seed. But faith in whom? Faith in him. The greatest attraction. Faith in Jesus, God's only begotten Son, the greatest attraction ever. Now, according to the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, Christianity is the number one ranked religion in the world today. There are, well, actually, uh, in 2010, 2.18 billion Christians in the world. And that compares with, well, and that's just about a third of the global population. Now, if you compare that with Islam, which is the second most um, largest religion, there's about one and a half billion adherents to that faith, and that's about 23% of the world's population. But as I think about that, Jesus is a part of Islam. I mean, they, Jesus is revered within Islam as a prophet and a great man. So that means that at least half the world's population has at the very least a favorable impression of Jesus, if not a full-on devotion to him. And if you read about his life and what he did and what he stood for, who, who could not be attracted to that? Jesus was the greatest gift and is also the greatest attraction and the reason that our response can be so simple. 
And furthermore, this verse contains the greatest promise that no one needs to perish. Perish is a term in this verse that's sometimes easy to overlook because we're sort of focusing on the, the earlier context of this great gift that God gives to us. Perish is the tragic consequence of rejecting God, either not believing in him or not surrendering our lives to his leadership or not accepting his gifts of forgiveness and eternal life. To perish doesn't point to any kind of a physical death, but to the dreadful reality of spiritual death and eternal punishment. But the greatest promise tells us that that dreadful reality of spiritual death and eternal punishment does not have to be our fate. If only in the simplicity of faith we receive the greatest gift unto ourselves. But the greatest difference. This simple conjunction contains or contrasts the difference between two eternal options, life and death. Now we make choices between things all the time, paper or plastic. We choose to slow down or speed up at a yellow light. <laughs> we choose to get up or stay in bed for another hour. Those are mundane, ordinary choices that we do every day. The greatest difference contrasts two things that could not be more different. and could not be less mundane and ordinary, to perish eternally or to live eternally. And then there's the greatest certainty. When you have something, you possess it. That's the definition of have, to possess, to own, or to hold. This part of, of the verse assures us that if we accept the greatest gift from the greatest giver, we have nothing less than the greatest certainty that it will be ours. And what we possess with the greatest certainty is eternal life, which is the greatest possession. Eternal life is literally the life of the world to come. Now in writing this, John uses that present tense of have, and it indicates that those who trust in Jesus begin to experience that life already in the present. Eternal life is John's equivalent to the kingdom of God. It's not simply endless life nor is it a life that just begins after you die. It's a new kind of life, a new order of existence that characterizes even now the person who believes in Jesus and is born again. 
Now, if we really and truly desire to see the greatness of God, we find it most clearly displayed in his son. That's why the question that Jesus asked to his disciples in the Gospel of Matthew is so important. Who do you say that I am? The question is even more important in our day because not every Jesus that we believe in is the real Jesus. See, we have uh, the Republican Jesus. The Republican Jesus is against tax increases and activist judges, and he's for family values and owning firearms. But we also have the Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart. He's for reducing our carbon footprint and for printing more money. We have therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. <coughs> Excuse me. There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you are. <coughs> There's touchdown Jesus. Touchdown Jesus helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. And there's martyr Jesus. Martyr Jesus is a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus. He was meek and mild with high cheekbones flowing hair, walks around barefoot wearing a sash, and he looks very German. There's hippie Jesus. Hippie Jesus teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us to remember that all you need is love. There's, there's yuppie Jesus. Yuppie Jesus encourages us to reach our full potential, to reach for the stars and buy a boat. <laughs> there's spirituality Jesus. He hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine, and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus. Good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons, inspiring people to believe in themselves. There's revolutionary Jesus, who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, to stick it to the man and blame things on the system. There's guru Jesus, 
a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you to find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus. A wise, excuse me, who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one that they had been waiting for. The son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's rule and reign, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth in the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of our current cultural mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and our God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. And he, above all else, is what's so great about Easter. Easter.